Good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, a nice, warm, special haven on a rainy day. That, uh, now, if you, if you get too cold, you can all just smush together. Um, I don't have a lot of announcements, so you can look in your bulletin, but we do have youth choir directly after church in the cottage next door. So if you have young ones that sing in the choir, make your way over there. We'd like to have the elders to read some from the life of Christ. We've been doing that on a regular basis, but this morning I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, if you look in your worship folder, today we're going to have communion with Christ, and I want you to prepare your heart to do so, first by looking at God's Word, and then I'll pray for us corporately, and you pray along individually. And then we're going to do a him, 233, Jesus, it's a gospel hymn, Jesus keep me near the cross, and you'll remain seated during that as Blake comes to lead for that, and think meditatively on that hymn, and sing that together, and then I'll invite you up for communion, and the way we've been doing it here of late, uh, I'll dismiss uh, each section, come up, get both elements, return back to your seat. And those that can participate are those that are in Christ and obedient to Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church. We have an open communion, but you do want to truly be regenerate and to be obedient to Christ in confession of Jesus Christ as Lord in believer's baptism. And so I commend you to do that. In any case, uh, let me go ahead and then draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 11. You know, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in the upper room. They were having a Passover feast. This Passover reminded them of God's deliverance physically from the bondage of Egypt. And of course, all the while, that was to demonstrate and portray what would actually happen in time and reality that Jesus Christ would deliver his people from their sin. And so he took this Passover event, feast, a celebration with a number of elements, and pointed out two in particular that from that point forward that his people would engage in, his people, the gathering of the regenerate, church. They would take two elements. One is bread, bread representing the body of Jesus Christ, his life. The other element would be the cup of blessing, a cup to drink and think about the atonement for our sin, blessed in Jesus Christ. Paul, to the church at Corinth, elaborates on this commemoration that we do from that point forward. And notice how I put in red here that section. You do this in remembrance of me. It's not a, an event in which we engage in some ritual that produces some sort of sanctification before God. 
that sanctification that we have, that salvation that we have before God comes through one person, the life and death of Jesus Christ alone. And so all of these symbols and that pointed towards this are, are kind of reduced really in just two elements for us to seriously take time and consider even now together. Now to the church at Corinth, if you notice this first section here in the text that I've carved out from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, Paul's writing to the church, and church at Corinth had a number of problems, and he says, I don't commend you. Because when you gather together, and this is what God's people would do, you'd gather together and, and hence be the church, a gathering of the redeemed, he says, you're not gathering together for better, but for worse. That's pretty strong language. And for the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions uh, among you, and, and I believe it in part. And that is a huge problem because in Christ we are called to be in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and therefore unified one with another. He says, I hear there are divisions. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized and how are the genuine recognized and this will go to some of the preaching next week it's it's how christ is manifested in your life particularly in our submission one to another in ways that are appropriate to our relationships he says when you come together it's not the lord's supper that you eat for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal those are demonstrating selfishness one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Can I commend you in this? No, I will not. Again, so he gives a harsh word of admonition to the people to recognize what indeed we have gathered together to do. It is a holy and a sacred time, and that's what he gets into in verse 23. He says, I have received from the Lord. Here is divine revelation from Jesus Christ. And what I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is what we're doing in this commemoration here, in this remembrance of the Lord, even this day. And then a warning, a warning of about judgment for those who are not truly regenerate and who are not confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that's what he means by that, a time in which you haven't examined yourself and confessed your sin, which we'll give you a moment to do so now, they'll be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Then here's the admonition, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We invite all to eat and drink. Prior to that, you want to examine yourself. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, you will not be here for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, this is your moment to prepare your heart to worship Christ this day, and in particular in a special way in which we partake upon these elements and do so in remembrance of him and all he has done. Respond as well then in, in a hymn which we'll solemnly sing through with great joy about Christ and the work that he has accomplished on the cross. In preparation for that, I want you to take a moment privately where you're at. If you have, cons- have sinned to confess, you won't confess them to me. You'll confess them to Christ. And he will hear you and he will forgive you. You can examine your own heart and prepare yourself to worship Christ today. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us go into, the, into prayer with the Lord even now. Let us pray. Father, we have gathered together today to worship you. Diverse people from different places collectively gathered together today with one single focus and purpose, and that is to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're thankful for all the aspects of worship that we can engage with today. The hearing of your word, the reading of it, the participation in prayer individually and corporately in this beautiful remembrance of Christ in Holy Communion and hearing what you would say to the church today to each of us individually. Father, I do pray, should there be anyone who is unworthy of this commemoration because they're outside of Christ, I pray that you'd bring them in now. I pray that you would save everyone. Give us a new heart, a heart with great affections towards you, not brought about by manipulation of the flesh, but through the power of the Holy Spirit to truly regenerate our hearts, to give us a a new desire and disposition for you, a recognition that the condemnation that we might feel because of our failure, that all is forgiven in Christ. And what a glorious time. I pray, Father, that the the work of Christ on the cross that we remember today, the life and the death, the burial, the resurrection and the ascension, 
all of that will be brought to mind in, in these elements that are brought to us as we think on these things. I pray, Father, that the joy that we have knowing that we are forgiven in Christ, that, that our merit that we, we need is, has been accomplished by Christ. And so may we stand alone in him and trust you for the great work that you have done. May it result in peace to those who see Christ clearly, a certain joy that is deep and abiding and abounding in our life. May it result in a freedom from fear and anxiety, but a joyful looking forward to that blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you hear our prayers and affections in, in worship and song and remembrance of these things. May, may these things be joyous in your sight. May you receive our worship and praise this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. As we prepare for communion, let's turn to uh, hymn number 233, where we remain seated. Jesus, keep me near the cross. And it's a beautiful hymn by Fanny Crosby and William Doan. Uh, and as we think through these words, verse 3 really uh, will prepare our hearts. It says, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. And... Uh, we should be thinking every day about communion and, and what the, the Lord has done for us in redemption. And so let's just uh, think through this hymn as we sing it to the Lord and worship prior to communion. 233, Jesus, keep me near the cross.
two elements, the bread and the cup. And Jerry, would you bless those elements as we come to receive? We're going to receive these elements together, if you will. We'll start on this side, come to the front, take both elements, then return to your seat, and we'll wait till everyone is served, then the middle, and then this aisle. When we get to this aisle, it, it might be easier to walk around the back and then come back up, circle back up that, this way. So let's go ahead and this side stand to receive both elements and return to your seat.
two elements, the bread and the cup. As we've mentioned, the, the bread is going to represent the very life of Christ. A life lived in perfection, a life in which he fulfilled all righteousness. You will need to be righteous to be able to stand before God without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. And if you really consider your life, you have no possibility of being clothed in that type of a garment. The good news is Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. He is the only man that has ever done so. That's why he came. and took on human flesh to accomplish what we could not. And by his grace, he has granted that to us. You won't be asked this as you stand before heaven's gate. Why should I let you in? I've heard that before. But if that were to occur, it's not. But if it were to, it would be real simple. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ alone that you will stand before God. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. What a blessedness it is to be able to stand then in the perfection that Jesus Christ has granted to us. Fulfilled every requirement, there is nothing for us to do but other than to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But you will have many accusers. It comes from a source of the evil one. He is called the accuser of the brethren. Satan himself, because he will remind you of your failure to achieve that. And how will those sins be atoned for? How will they be covered? They'll be covered by a death, the penalty that is required for those sins, the judgment on yourself or that judgment which was already accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ. Therefore, those that are in Christ Jesus have no condemnation because Jesus Christ paid it all, everyone, past, present, and beloved future. So receive this in remembrance of Christ. Blake will come now to lead us in this glorious hymn, Since I Have Been Redeemed. And I hope that is your testimony and what we are trying to, to remember in our hymn of song. So we'll stand together, 284, as Blake comes to lead us. I have been redeemed. <laughs>
250, and can it be? But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8.
may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Just before the scripture reading, I feel led to give a very brief word of testimony. Um, this is probably my favorite hymn, and can it be? This is my testimony. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I hope that this is part of your testimony as well. Our scripture reading today, Psalms 149 and 150. This reading will close out our reading of Israel's Psalter, the book of Psalms, on a high note, a very high note, note of highest praise to our Lord God Yahweh. It's certainly a fitting conclusion, but it's not really a conclusion for our praise of God is to continue to intensify, to be never-ending. If you'd like to follow along as I read Psalms 149 and 150, they are found on page 526 in the Pew Bible, page 526. We are all called to praise God in Psalm 149 because he, to use my words, condescends to call us his own people. For we who believe have been adopted into his very own family with a sure inheritance in heaven. The Lord takes pleasure in us who are the fruit of salvation. Also in Psalm 149, we're to praise our God because he is a righteous God who fulfills all of his promises, as he did in the Old Testament. God at the end of this age will execute all righteous judgment upon all who have rejected the gospel of salvation, for they in truth are rejecting the king himself. It is our honor, says the psalm, to praise God, not only in our salvation, but also for his righteous judgment. Psalm 150, I believe, pretty well speaks for itself. Psalm 149, sing to the Lord a new song. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Lord. Psalm 150, let everything praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. 
Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. For let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you will be so kind, if you will repeat with me as we read together, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come joyfully. We come in thanksgiving. We come in praise of your name, your high holiness, your sovereign will, your gospel plan. We thank you for the salvation to which you've called us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, brought to fruition by the convincing, the, the connecting, uh, convicting, the, uh, the quickening work of God the Holy Spirit. We thank you that we can meet together in this house with our fellow believers to worship, to praise, to hear the faithful preaching of your holy word. By your grace, may we truly hear the word and subsequently respond to today's message as the Holy Spirit draws us. Teach, guide, encourage, convict that we may be of service in the ministries of this local body. And I pray that you bless this day's offering. Bless also those who give. Show us your glory, O oh God. Amen. Amen. Let's take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 447, and we'll re recite the responsive reading found above our final hymn this morning. It's entitled, Resting in the Lord, 447. <clears throat> Let's begin. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you.
If I say my foot is slipping, when I am filled with cares, my soul finds rest in God alone. Both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. Amen. Let's sing of It Is Well With My Soul. We'll sing all four verses, and our final chorus will sing a cappella.
Thank you, Blake. Thank you, Amber, and thank you, Church. And I hope, indeed, that is your testimony, that it is well with your soul. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 6 as we're continuing on in our study of this book, which happens to be a sermon. We're looking at this section here, which is difficult to some, third warning passage in this sermon. The apostle is addressing deception. Deception may very well lead to spiritual apostasy. This preacher has been preaching along and has talked about the supremacy of Jesus over everything. In the particular audience to which this sermon was originally preached and recorded, and we have it for us today, the Hebrews were in a tough spot because they had recognized Jesus Christ as Lord and confessed him as such as a fulfillment of all that went before and what their rituals and symbols all pointed to was Jesus Christ. And yet their culture was still enmeshed in that and they were kind of loners in, in many respects and felt this great pull to go back, to, to regress, to, to go to the cultural norms, kind of take their Jesus with them. That regression is what we call spiritual apostasy. This warning is certainly understandable and noteworthy there. It's clear to see that. I mean, how could they accept Jesus and reject him at the same time? That idea, though, it transcends time and certainly applicable to us today and to all generations of all time. And I would say, really, it's even more pointed to, to the church. The church, ostensibly, is, is not a building per se. This is a place where we meet. We do call it the church because it's named after those that would gather. Those that would gather, and the only reason to do so, would be because they're regenerate people. Uh, I really have great trouble with these ideas of, well, let's just get all kinds of people to come to, to gather. My question is, why would anybody even bother? If you're not regenerate in Christ, if you don't love Christ, why would you gather together with those who do? I understand why they don't. But what we want to do is preach the gospel and have them come to Christ, and yes, then, then you don't have to twist their arms and ask them to gather. They will gather because they want to commune with Christ. They want to commune with Christ's body and to be a part of that. They'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and sealed to the day of redemption with a mind set that has a great desire to receive the promises, that promised inheritance that God has given to them, which is a, beyond our ability to fully perceive. This need for this warning then and, and now is because there's our, there are people who have heard these, these promises. This sounds great. You get no judgment, a great and grand inheritance, a 
home with God forever. This sounds great. And many would embrace that then and, and now, but, but there is a problem, and that is sin is deceitful. The devil is a liar. He has mastered his craft. Treating it much like bait on a hook to lure people away, to entice them. James would describe it this way. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And the desire, when it has conceived, brings birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the danger. And he admonishes the church in Jerusalem, James does, in James chapter 1, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. This is a message to those that would ostensibly gather, claiming the name of Christ to be one with the beloved and to be unified with one another. It's a great caution, don't be deceived. Same kind of reminder this preacher in Hebrews is giving as well. We must be aware of and be reminded constantly of the danger of apostasy and the awful consequences of regressing, falling away. The first warning, if you remember, is chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard then. Why? Lest we drift away from it. And then a second one in chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Because there is no other God, you understand. There is only one, the living God, the only one. Instead, we're to call then to exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is really deceitful. You may believe one thing and yet not really embrace the truth. And that's why we have now a third warning here in chapter 6 concerning, again, spiritual apostasy. Now, last week, I don't even know what I preached on because I, I went back to go look at my notes and I guess I really did wander off. But the passion of that was simply to introduce this section, and that is to emphasize how crucial it is to, to pay attention, to not be, quote-unquote, dull of hearing, to, to verse 11 of chapter 5, to actually listen, because in this falling away, this potential apostasy, the warning is given to the church because there is a point of no return. That's what we emphasized last week. If you weren't here, you can catch up on our archived messages from Sermon Audio, and I invite you to do that. I won't replay that. Instead, we'll now look at the text and recognize how serious it is and feel the urgency then to, to pay attention to the warnings that are given and I'll put it in the context then of chapter 6 and read the first 12 verses. Follow along with me, if you will. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instructions about washing and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That, that was all aspects of Judaism. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And this we will do if God permits. And here's key, what we're going to focus on now. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come and then to have fallen away to restore them to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Illustration. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love with which you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray for everyone in the sound of my voice that indeed they may not be sluggish, lazy, apathetic, but be engaging. Engaging such that through the power of your spirit they may be imitators of those who have walked before us to have true faith and abiding faith to be patient and to look forward to the promises that you have that exceed anything we could hope for and anything we could imagine and truly with the psalmist we say praise the Lord amen as I mentioned, folks, this warning here in our text of spiritual apostasy is really a matter of life and death and is worth looking carefully at it. Hearing the gospel and then rejecting it or hearing the gospel and then regressing from it, not growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, that will lead to a hardness of heart in either case. A hardness of heart that very well may result in spiritual apostasy. And sometime along that continuum, there will be a point of no return. I don't pretend to tell you what that point might be. There is a point. And it's a fair warning to not get anywhere close to it. 
he talks to this church, this preacher here in our text, and as I mentioned in 5.11, says, don't be dull of hearing. He, he closes out with the same phraseology of being sluggish, the same word, actually. Means pay attention, don't be lazy, listen up, be diligent, so that you will be able to, verse 14 of chapter 5, so that you will be able to distinguish good from evil. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, quote from Spurgeon, this discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's really knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's what we face even in this day. It's really close, but it's not close enough. It's close, but it's still far away, and that's what's being emphasized. As I remind you, as we open chapter 6, there's instructions on, on how to avoid this danger. And that is, first, in their particular case, leave the ABCs of Judaism that pointed to the perfection and the maturity of Jesus Christ and go on to, to look at what those symbols intended to communicate, that is, Jesus Christ. He's come in the flesh. And we understand through divine revelation that Jesus is the fulfillment of all. He is the true vine. He is the bread of life, he is the water of life. And so what must you do then? In, in what way would you pay attention and not be dull of hearing? Actively engage in growing in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. This is a supernatural engagement, synergistic, if you will, be between the believer and the illuminating and powerful work of the Holy Spirit in your life and actively engage to make sure that you're not turning back, turning away, but instead moving forward. Moving forward, not in your own strength, in your own might, verse 3, but as God permits. In other words, under his sovereign power. We recognize that. And why is this so important? As I introduced last week, verse 4, the danger is if you don't grow in grace, if you regress, if you do turn back, there is a point of no return. And he would phrase it this way, it's impossible, and then verse 6, for those to fall in the way to restore them to repentance. That's what I mean. The falling away is a falling away from the faith, that is an, an apostasy as we call it. The apostate is somebody who is not an atheist or really agnostic. It is somebody who has heard about the faith, knows the faith, participated in the faith, and willfully turns their back on the faith in rebellion against God. And so you see why this would be a good message for church. <laughs> because it's for people that gather together and think that they're in the faith, and they know about it, they participate in it, but they turn away from it at some point. Now, theologically, we, we know why that occurs. 
John has communicated to that in one of his epistles, 1 John 2, 19, where he explains this very clearly. Why do people participate, engage, maybe memorize scripture, maybe know the gospel by like the back of their hand, participate in worship for a long time, and then turn away because they went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, they're not regenerate. That is the evidence of it. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This is the what we call the perseverance of the saints. It is God's work in the regenerate heart that will not let us go like the hound of heaven that will continue to come back, to bring us back. But they did go out, he would say, this is 1 John 2, 19, I'm quoting it for you, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. One who has been made alive in Christ may very well engage in temporal sin. But it will not be characteristic of his lifestyle. And the reason is because of the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit in making the unregenerate then regenerate and a new creation in Christ. And because they're alive, as opposed to someone who is using the analogy of someone who is dead, if you throw a live person in a body of water, they might struggle in, the, in close to drowning, if you will, but as long as there's breath in them, they will continue to struggle. The Christian life, the regenerate, is then characterized primarily by repentance and faith. From the beginning to the end, it continues. Now, as he grows in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, which we're stressing, there should be increased evidence of that in their, in their expression of their life. This is the newness of life that, that's going to be expressed as you grow and bring about, by the way, full assurance, which we're going to talk about um, the, these concepts next week. It is the fruit of the Spirit, that is, the, the working of the Holy Spirit that indwells the life of the believer that brings about love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, not by the flesh, but by some inner desire which God has given anew and empowered by His Holy Spirit. And the discipline of the of, of the of the flesh then is accomplished by the very control of that spirit, Ephesians 5, 8 through 9. And it is expressed, by the way, in songs of praise and joy. The apostate is an unbelieving person. An apostate is an unregenerate person person but it's not clear to us all the time until they exit if you will if you want to take first john 2 19 and oftentimes not even to the very person themselves because they may very well be deceived that's the whole point of this message don't be deceived it's a call to examine yourself it it can be difficult because this former participant who becomes 
an apostate was someone that was actually really closely related with the people of God. Maybe they went to Sunday school as children. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe, maybe they sang the songs. Maybe they still know the songs. Maybe they still know all the saints. Maybe they prayed a prayer. Maybe they got engaged in various rituals. Perhaps they got baptized. And so they're deceived. You know because they walked away, because they don't have any affections for God. It's difficult. For us to know, and I say even more so for the person that is actually deceived. I think the message Jesus gives is very haunting. In Matthew chapter 7, and you remember this text, I'm sure. I'll just read it for you. Where Jesus himself says in 721 of Matthew, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. To say Lord, Lord is more than just saying Jesus is Lord. This is, you, you see the, the um, expression here is they, they can't believe it. They, they repeat it twice. They really think that Jesus is Lord, that they have actually confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. They've said the words, isn't that good enough? They've been through all the ritual, isn't that good enough? Can I get into the kingdom? Nicodemus comes to Jesus in chapter 3 of John, and he says, you know, hey, we, we know that you're from God. You couldn't do all this stuff. And, and it is incredible what Christ did. No one ever came close to what he did. Nicodemus acknowledges that, and, and he, so he confirms Jesus, hey, you're one of us. We're part of God. He turns to Nicodemus and says, now nah, you're deceived. You can't enter the kingdom of God without being born again. That is, to be born anew. That is, to be regenerated. You can't even see it for what it really is. You think you're seeing the kingdom of God, but it's going to take a regenerate heart. And how will that come about? By your activity, by your ritual, by your information that you have? No, this is a dynamic spiritual work of God. Jesus will explain it in chapter 3. He says, well, it's like the wind. It's really kind of hard to capture. You know where it comes from. You, 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 you don't know where it's going. It's just there. But you see the evidence of it. That's what you're seeing. You're, you're seeing stuff blown about. And so is the work of God. You see the evidence in the life of the believer. One of the evidences is they're not going to fall away. They're going to have a disposition of doing God's will, and that's what he tells them in Matthew chapter 7. Not did you do these things, but what's the disposition of your heart? And probably one of the hardest words to ever have to hear is when Jesus declares to these Depart from me. I never knew you. And it's on that basis that I often tell people, it's not so much, do you know Jesus? The real question is, does he know you? Their work is considered lawlessness because it's not done by faith. It's not done by belief. 
And so there's an ominous warning then to examine your own heart, to go to Christ and, and ask him to accomplish what you cannot accomplish on your own, to truly regenerate your heart and empower you by the Holy Spirit. Because of this warning back to our text in verse 4, it's impossible to, to, to bring back somebody who is finally and fatally crossed whatever line that might be in regressing, going back from the faith. Now, as I mentioned last week, I believe, I did help you to, to understand what we're going to get into eventually that this, these people that you can't restore back are not believers. They're apostates. They're unbelievers. They're, they're, they're fake believers. They're, they're engaged in participation in all of the religious aspects, but they're really not truly believers at heart. You notice the, the pronouns that are given in verse 4 and verse 6 as well. It's he uses pronouns like those, them, they, and their. You can't bring them back to repentance since they are crucified to their own heart. And then he appeals to the true believers within the congregation as your case. Notice the shift in verse 9. Do you see that? We speak in this way, but he's reminding, if you're truly in Christ, beloved, and what a beautiful word, I'm not speaking this about you. So here's this message that is given to the congregation at large. And the preacher doesn't know if there's defectors. He doesn't know about the little ones that might grow up and walk away. And leave the faith. It's not because we want them in our denomination. And it isn't because we want them just to be in our congregation. It's because there's no hope outside of Christ. And so we preach, and so we pray, and so we exhort, and so we encourage continually so that people will not walk away from the faith. And a call to examine really our own hearts because exposure to God, God's people, and God's work isn't sufficient. It's very close yet it's very far. We'll see what we can get through this text here of five characteristics of those that were really close, but not close enough. And at first glance, and I think this is why it confuses folks, this next little section here in our text, because the terminology that, that is used seems to be that that you would use as someone who is really a Christian and really regenerate. And at first grant, glance, it looks like it, but that's really what goes on today as well. There's a lot of people who would profess that they love Christ, they live for Christ, they look, kind of look like it. Maybe they even engage in, in a lot better actions than you or I, but but yet they're, they're not close enough. They're not truly regenerate. A.W. Pink has a good summary statement on this when he talks about this, these five 
elements that are mentioned here, he calls them grace, and he'll describe them as God's common grace through the church. And his, his um, remark is this, that these people, though they were close, yet they were not true Christians. This is evident and from what is not said. Observe, they were not spoken of as God's elect, as those for whom Christ died, as those who were born of the Spirit. They are not said to be justified, forgiven, accepted in the Beloved, nor is anything said of their faith, love, or obedience. And that is key. We'll get to that in, a, in a weeks to come. Yet these are the very things which distinguish a real child of God. And I agree. Being born of the Spirit, being justified, being forgiven, being accepted into the beloved, demonstrating faith, love, and obedience. These things are characteristics of a true child of God. But somebody who is really close, well, that's really what's being described here. Really close. In fact, you can, you're not going to be an apostate unless you, you have to fall away from something. And here it is. Those things that are more superficial as opposed to supernatural. Notice here it says in our text, in the case of those who have, it's impossible to bring back who? In the case of those who have once been enlightened, verse 4. Now, at first glance, you think, well, this is somebody who's enlightened. They, they have the, the uh, enlightenment means knowledge but here this enlightenment it it refers to being intellectually made aware of aware of information that that's all it's getting to in fact he's going to give another warning in chapter 10 and verse 26 if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving the knowledge of sin there is no sacrifice for sins in other words this is not really embracing the truth. This is just knowing about it. In this dispensation, after all the fulfillment of these symbols and types in Christ, the gospel's message is clear. The knowledge of it is known. This is truly a day of enlightenment, if you will, and knowledge. We know who, who God is. One God, three persons. The Father sending the Son in the power of the Spirit to come, take on flesh, to live among us, to, to die, to be buried, to rise again, to ascend on high, and to promise to return. He promised in the meantime to, to not leave us as orphans, but send the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. We know he's coming in glory to redeem his people and to judge the nations. All of this we know. The end has been known in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the revealing. That is the explanation, the understanding. And there is nothing more to be said other than to proclaim him for the forgiveness of sin. This knowledge of truth was, was, was known in their day, as this preacher preached in, in Hebrews. They, they knew all of this. 
this has all been, been fulfilled. It's all been accomplished in the person of Christ. And how much even more in our day in the ability to communicate this. It's not hard to find what we've said. It's a little simple search in secular sites. Look at the Wikipedia page. It'll tell you the gospel. You can find that information. It's hard to probably find a place that, that doesn't know if, if you actually wanted to know. But in the church, it, it, that's where this message is, that, that you have been especially enlightened because it's part of your prayers, it's part of your songs, it's part of your reading of Scripture, it's part of the preaching of Scripture. It's part of the symbols in which we engage in, whether it's communion or baptism. All of that is communication of the truth. I know of a, an apostate that walked away from it all. And I found his little New Testament one day. He's dead, by the way. His life continually towards destruction. And now he's gone under the full judgment of God. But I found his little New Testament and I said, well, was that just something he had in his pocket or what? You know, the guy had uh, marked through it the, what we would call the Romans Road. You ever heard of that? Which goes through the gospel, through the book of Romans. Had everyone underlined. Probably had many of those verses memorized. He was enlightened. He, he knew it. But salvation is more than an intellectual assent to, to facts. It has to move beyond that to, to faith. Faith, which is a personal response in which you recognize those facts, those truths that actually be true. And it, and, and it affects your affections, if you will. Because if you really know them to be true, you're not going to walk away. You get it? If you, if you really know that to be true. If you knew walking this way was just going to, to put you into a meat grinder, which you could see, you're not going there unless you're mentally off. If you have your faculties about you, you're not going that way. But if you don't really believe it exists and it's not true, then you go, so knowing about the facts isn't good enough. Facts matter, but faith is, matters more. So, again, this is this warning of the gospel. And it's a call that we would have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That it changes our very heart and desire. The second phrase that's mentioned there in verse 4 is not only do they know they have some enlightenment but they've also tasted the heavenly gift again this is really close this is really close to salvation and that's the point and some people look at that and say well this person weren't they really regenerate no but they were really close they, were ta- they tasted the heavenly gift. The word taste here refers to experience. They had an experiential engagement in Christianity. And many people do. 
you'll find that phrase used in, the pre in a couple previous chapters, in chapter 2, verse 9, for example, talking about Jesus Christ who, who died so that he might taste death for everyone. Taste there is used the same way, and that is so that he might experience, that he might engage in that. So, so here is, is speaking to the congregation, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, that is they have experienced this. The, the heavenly gift, all gifts commonly are, all good gifts commonly are expression of God's grace. But here it talks about the, the heavenly gift. And I think this heavenly gift supremely points to that one who in particular is Jesus Christ. It's one thing to know that God is good and gives us good gifts. But in particular, Jesus Christ. And they have experienced that light of the world. John will describe Jesus Christ as someone who is in him intrinsically because he's God, John 1, 4, that in him was life. And metaphorically then, that life is the light of men. Jesus would later on in chapter 8 in John say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You hear it? There is life in Christ. And they have experienced that in the sense that observationally, intellectually knowing it, observationally seeing what happens in the life and the congregation of the church who have been brought from darkness to life and experiences uh, engaged in, in totally different ways and practices. Jesus would then explain to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you then, those that are in Christ, because you're in him who is life and light, then you function as light in the world. The world has tasted of this gift. They've experienced engagement with those that are truly in Christ. But it is not good enough to taste. Using that metaphor of taste, you're going to have to eat. Don't push uh, illustrations and examples too far. Just take them for what they're trying to communicate. And that's, you know, not every aspect of it applies, but here in a concrete way, you're trying to deal with something uh, in a spiritual realm, an immaterial way, so it's helpful to communicate in, in materially, and that's what's going on here. Here's the glorious gift of Jesus Christ. And beloved, the call is not to take a, a, a bite, to not take a, just a little taste, but actually to consume it. All right? Again, don't push it too far, but um, I'm running out of time, so we'll, we'll spend on this. I thought I was going to get through five points, but I was... Just, I was <laughs> thought too much of myself, I guess. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, because I think it would be help, more helpful to actually see this point. These who walked away in, engaged, that is, they, they experienced 
his gift, but that experience wasn't sufficient. And so here Jesus uses this same metaphor of eating right before the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, there's going to be a lot of eating in the festival going on. So it's very appropriate at that very time. John chapter 6. And here is a way in which it's, it's contrasting the idea of, of tasting and eating. And the people do have trouble with this passage because they miss the whole point of what the taste and eat is actually doing. He's not talking about a physical aspect. This is, this is a spiritual engagement. And he's just using the physical aspects to help us have a connection to what is being communicated. So look at John chapter 6 and verse 53. John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Remember when he puts that, this is a point of emphasis and I really mean this. We would say amen, amen. We don't talk that way much, but that's how they would have. Is <coughs> a very important, emphatic statement for you to, as the preacher of Hebrews would say, pay attention to. Unless you, note this, eat the flesh of the Son and of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, again, this is where some our Catholic friends misappropriate this and somehow think that taking these communion elements that somehow mystically become the, the physical body of Christ and you eat those elements, that's not what he's talking about at all. We talked about from 1 Corinthians, you do that in remembrance of Christ. We don't represent Christ in the communion. We represent him. That, that, that is adventures and totally missing the point. And it is one of the reasons people can be, be deceived and think that they're a Christian because they're engaging in various aspects that, that they think well, somehow that'll bring a certain amount of righteousness to me. It will not. Faith in Christ. What he's talking about instead here is this analogy between tasting the gift and actually eating it, consuming it. Okay? Don't push it too far. This is not cannibalism. That's not what he's talking about. And by the way, the Roman world had a hard time with the early church because of the way they would say things like that. We're, we're, we're eating his body and drinking his blood spiritually, not physically. Notice verse 54, carrying on the same analogy, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here he's talking about someone who is truly regenerate, not someone who just knows about Christ, experientially because they're engaged with the redeemed but who truly know him that that christ is the center of their life that they are consumed with christ and he says for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him again he's speaking in a metaphorical way in a spiritual way and as the Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And that is how you will have eternal life. It is using this analogy, 
consuming Christ, merged in him, fed by him. <coughs> this is the bread, then, that comes down to heaven. Do you think actual physical bread dropped from heaven? No. It's Jesus who is what? The bread of life. That's what he's talking about. The, the uh, uh, Descending in the incarnation. This is the bread of life that comes down. It's not like the bread the fathers ate and died. And that's the example. Because that was just a physical symbol to remind them that provision comes from God alone. It is Jesus, ultimately, who is the, the, the giver of all good gifts. It is Jesus who is the, the water of life. It is Jesus who is the bread of life. Now, you must eat physical bread, and you must drink physical water in that aspect, for sure. But it is ultimately the life comes in and through Jesus Christ. He will live. Live how? Spiritually, not talking about physical. If you feed on Christ, you live spiritually. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the Father said, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, that is Christ, will live forever. He's central to everything. Central to your life. And that's the call to the church. Don't engage in just rituals and come and know the facts about the gospel and experience a little bit, sing and show up from time to time, maybe even on a regular basis, maybe even engage in all kinds of charitable activity like the people in Matthew 7 who cried out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this? Yeah, you did it out of the power of the flesh, not the power of the spirit. You really weren't truly connected to Christ, consumed by him. Well, that's hard preaching. It's hard preaching to say that Jesus Christ must be central to your life. You're not going to add him on and then go back to Judaism, in their case, or you're not going to add him on and go back to your cultural Christianity. You're not going to add him on and, and take some, you know, it's just something to put in your back pocket as an as a emergency escape in the time of need. No, the, the call is don't be deceived. You, you will need to be truly consumed by Jesus Christ. Admittedly, this is, this is a hard saying. You, you're typically, in, I mean, unless God wills and it's the work of the power of the Spirit, typically this is not a way to, to win friends and influence people. <laughs> Maybe if I would smile more and tell you how you can get all kinds of stuff that would just rot and fall away, that that would be something more appropriate to what you want. But you're going to die and you sin. And Jesus cares much more about that. And if you want life, you're going to have to find it in one person. That's Jesus Christ. And, beloved, you have to examine your own heart because I don't have a way to measure or look into it. And that's why this preacher is preaching and he gives him warning after warning after warning. He ex 
He extols on the excellency, beauty, and supremacy of Christ and then warns and warns and warns that don't look away, don't, look, don't drift away, um, don't regress, grow in this grace because that Jesus Christ must consume your life. But it's hard to hear that. And, and beloved, um, if you look here in verse 60 in our text, that's exactly what happens. That's the response that he gets with this kind of preaching. When many of his disciples, and expand that to followers, he's not talking about the 12, he's talking about followers of Jesus. They, they had quite a congregation at that time. Many people came along because they, they enjoyed all that Jesus could do for them, particularly fixing bread out of nothing was good. In any case, but when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, and now he's pointing back to the twelve, do you take offense at this? Does that really bother you when we say that uh, getting a taste of Christianity is, is not good enough, you need to consume Christ? Is that hard? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he, he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And, and by the way, that helps explain what I've just been saying. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about even eating representatives of his body and life. He's talking about the Spirit. The spirit and life, those are just analogies. And then sadly, he has to report here in verse 64, even in the message between the greatest preacher ever. Could you imagine standing before the Son of God, seeing all that is done, participating in all those good works that Christ has accomplished and done right before them? They certainly had, they certainly knew who he was and what he did. They certainly tasted of some of his good work but he says this there are some there are some who do not believe and this is what Jesus knows that I don't know and you don't know he knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe there were more than one there were many and he knew who it was who would betray him who is that that's Judas Judas is the apostate. He is the exemplar of it. We don't think that great of Judas, but they did. Th they put him in charge of quite a bit. Their money. His influence was renowned. His character, no doubt, appeared externally to be perhaps one of the greatest. Maybe it wasn't that hard when you compared him to Peter and John, but I'm just saying. He was a refined and polished and good guy. Everybody would have thought he was in, and Christ knew his heart. Remember when at the, at the Lord's Supper, when they were doing that, they, Jesus said, one of you going to betray? They're like, who is it? And even that, they couldn't figure it out. It was Judas. But Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. In verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. So coming to Christ then isn't saying, well, I'd just like to, 
to be here. I'd like to, to come to him. No, it is a, the grant, think of that as a gift or grace. This is God's grace to you. And so after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus had a good way of clearing out the crowd, didn't he? <laughs> he just told them the truth. But beloved, the good news is simply this. Jesus would say, if you come to me, I'm not going to turn you away. Because the reason that you come and that you hear his voice is because it is granted to you by the Father. So don't be in despair. Oh, well, maybe I'm, I'm the one that's out. Do you have an inkling in your heart that you want to be in? Do you want to come with, to Christ? Do you want to consume him? Do you want Christ to be a part of your life? Come. He will receive you. He will not turn you away. And you'll find out in time it is because the work of his dynamic grace in your heart to bring about repentance and faith. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that indeed we, we ourselves know the truth, that we have been uh, blessed to be made aware and know it. Um, m many people don't have as clear a revelation as, as we do in, in, the, in the West for sure all our abilities to be able to, at an instant, be able to read and know your word and, and to hear the truth proclaimed across our land. And then to experience it within the lives of the believers who have truly been regenerate. What a great blessing it is. I pray, Father, that you would indeed use the power of your word proclaimed to, to warm our hearts, to go beyond just an intellectual ascent of truth, and a superficial experience of religiosity to a true relationship with Jesus Christ that um, will be part of our e experience as we grow in grace and the knowledge of you and increase in our affections and joy of your good gifts to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, this is the time which we give you a moment to reflect on the things that we were able to get to today and do so now think on these truths the way christ has communicated to you if you need to come to christ repent and believe you can do that even now you need to reaffirm and and be encouraged not to regress from the faith again call on him and ask for the power of the holy spirit to engage and do that in your life take a moment to think on these things even now Father, I do pray that our life would be consumed with Christ, who is indeed the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, upholding all things by the word of his power. And 
thankfully making purification for our sins and then sitting down at the right hand on the majesty on high. To Christ be glory now and forevermore. Amen. stand and turn to 413 in our hymnals 413 turn your eyes upon Jesus keeping our eyes on Jesus the source and perfecter of our faith Gracious Father, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and from this time forth and forevermore. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.